from the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Post, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahe Azadi with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, February 10th. Today, House managers present a harrowing case for convicting Trump and the states that are pulling ahead on vaccinations. Today began the formal opening arguments in President Trump's second impeachment trial. That is senior political reporter Aaron Blake. And pursuant to the provisions of Senate Resolution 47, the managers for the House of Representatives have 16 hours to make the presentation of the case. We have 16 hours over two days for the Democratic House impeachment managers to effectively make their case before the president's lawyers get their own 16 hours. We recognize Mr. Manager Raskin to begin the presentation of the case for the House of Representatives, Mr. Raskin. Thank you very much, Mr. President, members of the Senate. Good morning. Good day. Today, some of the people that we heard from were lead impeachment manager Jamie Raskin of Maryland, followed by Congressman Joe Neguse of Colorado, Congressman Eric Swalwell from California, and uh, Texas Congressman Joaquin Castro kind of laid out the timeline of events. And then we also heard from Congresswoman Madeline Dean of Pennsylvania. What we've seen so far from Democrats is that they're not only using those hours to make arguments, they're actually using them to show video and footage that they think is evidence of the argument that they're trying to make. What you are about to hear has not been made public before. Multiple capital entries! Multiple capital entries! 1318. 12 to 5, and we're coming around uh, from the south side. Yeah, one thing the Democrats have decided in the last couple of days is that they would like to have a little bit of a quicker trial than we might otherwise have had in a situation like this. There's no guarantee that we're going to see any witnesses. It seems unlikely that we will. And they've argued essentially that their best evidence is what we already have out there. There's the video of what happened. There's the president's tweets. In all, Trump tweeted at Raffensperger 17 times in the coming week, calling him a disaster, obstinate, not having a clue, being played for a fool, and being a so-called Republican, all because Raffensperger was doing his job, ensuring the integrity of our elections. There are his many comments that he made both before the election and after the election, which we began to see featured in their case today. On July 30th, 2020 will be the most inaccurate and fraudulent election in history. Just big words with nothing to prove them. But he wanted to make his supporters believe that an election victory would be stolen from him and from them. But a lot of what we saw, especially Monday, but also on Tuesday, is a real appeal to emotion, playing images of what happened on that day and essentially arguing that this is a very serious circumstance, something that needs to be looked into. The question from there is, can they drive home not just that these scenes were very bad, but also that the president personally incited them and was responsible for them? And of course, a big part of that argument is not just about 
the fact that what happened in the Capitol was bad and scary, but that the president specifically incited it and that there was some relationship between the president's words and actions and what actually transpired. Talk to me about some of the ways in which we saw the House impeachment managers providing the evidence for that. So one way in which they did it came from Congressman Joaquin Castro of Texas. He essentially laid out a timeline talking about how the president essentially laid a predicate for this for many months, even before the election. He had tweets dating back to June and July of this year in which the president effectively said that the election would be stolen. In tweet after tweet, he made sweeping allegations about election fraud that couldn't possibly be true. But that was the point. He didn't care if the claims were true. He wanted to make sure that his supporters were angry, like the election was being ripped away from them. Uh, The president around the same time said that the only way that he would lose the election was if it was rigged against him. On November 15, he states, I concede nothing. We have a long way to go. Rigged election. November 17, in a Twitter statement, dead people voted. That's it. No evidence. Just dead people voted. November 28, Twitter statement. We have found many illegal votes. Stay tuned. I think the question for Democrats, to your point about incitement, is whether they can prove that this was technically inciting the people who stormed the Capitol on the January 6th, or if this was more of an effort for the president to save face, to maybe argue that an election in which he was apparently going to lose, according to all the polls at the time, was one that he never actually lost. And so even in that situation, he could, for months and years after his loss, claim that he didn't actually lose an election. And so I think that what you're going to see potentially moving forward is a little bit more focus on the times the president alluded to violence by his supporters, which has been a feature of his presidency from the very beginning. I also thought it was notable how the House impeachment managers really focused in on the details of this rally that preceded the attack on the Capitol. Like the fact that Trump knew that other rallies in the weeks after the election had led to acts of violence from his supporters and that he could have been expected to know that this would also lead to violence from his supporters. We heard this argument from Stacey Plaskett of the U.S. Virgin Islands, who is also an impeachment manager. And then when he saw the violence his supporters were capable of, he channeled it to his big, wild, historic event. He organized January 6th with the same people that had just organized a rally resulting in substantial violence and made absolutely sure this time these violent rally goers wouldn't just remain in place. He made sure that those violent people would literally march right here to our steps from the ellipse to the Capitol to stop the steal. His cavalry. Congressman Nagus talked about how this rally wasn't timed for the day before January 6th or the weekend before, that it was timed exactly so that it was happening as all these members of Congress were in their chambers. On January 6th, as 
Lead Manager Raskin said, the exact same day that we were certifying the election results. What time was that rally scheduled for? The exact same time that this chamber was certifying the election results in joint session. And that by that point, Trump could have known that that guns had already been seized from people in, in the crowd, that there were likely weapons there, and that all of these little pieces demonstrate that this was intentionally timed and intended to have some kind of tangible effect on the people in chambers. Yeah, this has been one of the the most novel or at least maybe unexpected arguments that we've seen from the Democrats. You're right. January 6th, by the time this rally began, by the time Congress started voting, this was pretty much a baked in result. Uh, Vice President Pence had already said that he did not agree that he could unilaterally cease the certification of election results in these states. We knew there weren't going to be enough votes to halt those certifications, not just because there weren't enough Republicans but just because there just weren't enough Republicans, period, in those chambers. Uh, they didn't have enough votes to actually make this happen. And so, you know, at the very least, it would have been an, a rally that would seem to have been sending a message about being unhappy with the situation. And the worst uh, reading of this, which is something that Democrats seem to be arguing, is, is that it was meant to intimidate or potentially lead to a situation like the one that we saw on January 6th. And they also pointed out that by that point, there had already been violent implications for some of the words and messages that President Trump had spread, that there were threats against elected officials in other states or election officers, and that he had already seen how those things could transpire into real events of either violence or at least threats. The same day as those tweets, the same day as those tweets, around 100 Trump supporters showed up in front of the Maricopa County Election Center in Phoenix, some of them carrying rifles, literally trying to intimidate officials to stop the count, just as President Trump had commanded. Arizona Secretary of State Katie Hobbs said that protesters were, quote, causing delay and disruption and preventing those employees from doing their job. Yeah, I think that's a really important point of the arguments today, too, the deliberate negligence argument, essentially that the president was aware that this kind of thing could happen. The impeachment managers mentioned officials like Gabriel Sterling, a Republican in Georgia who talked about the idea that the president should immediately put a stop to election officials like him being threatened. Another official, Gabriel Sterling, a Republican who voted for Trump made this point and appealed directly to our president to stop his dangerous conduct. Mr. President, it looks like you likely lost the state of Georgia. We're investigating. There's always a possibility. I get it. And you have the rights to go through the courts. What you don't have the ability to do, and you need to step up and say this, is stop inspiring people to commit potential acts of violence. Someone's going to get hurt. Someone's going to get shot. Someone's going to get killed. 
We had predictions of these kinds of things, even dating back years from Republicans when they were against the president in the 2016 primary. So I think that the uniting argument on that front is that this was at the very least an eminently foreseeable outcome of everything the president had said and everything his supporters had come to believe. Another poster on the forum, the Donald.Win, wrote on January 4th, quote, If Congress illegally certifies Biden, Trump would have absolutely no choice but to demand us to storm Congress and kill slash beat them up. Donald Trump will have no choice. That was what he made them believe. To the point his supporters felt justified even in carrying weapons and storming our Capitol. This was in post after post. And the combination of his unwillingness to prevent it in the first place and what he said or didn't say in the hours afterwards really drove home the idea that this wasn't necessarily something that he disliked and and that it might have even been something that he wanted to see in the end. So I think that that's a little bit different of an argument from incitement, which requires actually, you know, causing something either deliberately or not deliberately uh, is being okay with something the same as incitement. But certainly it feeds into the idea that this was an outcome that the president at the very least was okay with. We also know that Trump's lawyers are going to argue that there is a difference between incitement of insurrection and political speech, right? That if you say you need to fight for what you believe in, oftentimes people don't actually mean physically fight, right? And I thought it was interesting how Congressman Raskin started to approach that argument. Incitement to violence is, of course, not protected by the First Amendment. That's why most Americans have dismissed Donald Trump's First Amendment uh, rhetoric. Uh, simply by referring to Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes's handy phrase, you can't shout fire in a crowded theater. And he talked about, you know, that aphorism that everyone talks about of yelling fire in a crowded theater, right? That if the if the things that you say have real tangible effects, that there is an argument that it is really a crime and not just free speech. But he actually took that anecdote even further in saying this wasn't just yelling fire in the crowded theater. This is the fire chief yelling fire in a crowded theater and then basically like sitting back and laughing at the whole situation. The, the president's legal team has used its free speech argument in a very broad and I think overly simplistic way. And I think that's something that even several conservative legal scholars who Congressman Raskin cited today, including the founder of the Federalist Society, have said. Essentially, they're saying the president has free speech without addressing the very established limits on free speech, which is things like Uh, incitement, things like defamation and libel. You can't say whatever you want. That's just not a reality of our American legal system. And, And the Trump team hasn't really dealt with the specifics in any measurable way. And I think that really feeds into the other point we talked about, which is the negligence or the deliberate negligence argument that Democrats are making. So House impeachment managers have another day to be able to make their arguments. They're going to continue through Thursday. But at some point, we're going to see Trump's lawyers come back and make their counter arguments. And from what we've seen so far, what do you expect they will argue and how effectively will they be able to argue it? I think one big question is how much they actually talk about Trump's claims about the election. How much do they address 
the possibility that those claims could lead people to take these kinds of actions. If you look at their briefs, I would guess that their defense will focus more on that broad issue of free speech. It will focus more on the idea that these proceedings are unconstitutional. The fact is that delving into these issues, even if you don't believe the president incited this insurrection, gets into some very dicey conduct that even many of the jurors in this case have acknowledged was bad or even somewhat culpable for what happened on January 6th. I also think that it's worth pointing out that after the arguments on Tuesday, you had several members of the Senate and even some Republicans say that they were really dissatisfied with the arguments that they heard from Trump's lawyers. It speaks for itself. It was disorganized, random, had nothing. They talked about many things, but they didn't talk about the issue at hand. And so if uh, if you, if I'm an impartial juror and I'm trying to make a decision based upon uh, the facts as presented on this issue, then the House managers did a much better job. In particular, that Bruce Castor was, you know, in his opening for the former president, made this kind of rambling, not necessarily like totally sensical argument about things that I think a lot of people found really unrelated to the central arguments of the case. I'll be quite frank with you. We changed what we were going to do on account that we thought that the House manager's presentation was well done. Senators of the United States, they're not ordinary people. And boy, this is a diverse group. We still know what records are, right? On the thing you put the needle down on and you play it. And uh, here's little Bruce, eight, nine, ten years old, listening to this back in the late 60s. The people are smart enough in the light most favorable to them They're smart enough to pick a new administration if they don't like the old one. And they just did. Are there concerns from Republicans about that, that the former president isn't being defended in the way that they want to see him defended? Yeah, because I think that matters for Republican senators when it comes to their ultimate votes. I mean, if the you know, even if the vast majority of Republican senators will vote to acquit, and I think that's still the likely outcome here, doing so after a case is handled as poorly as it was on Monday by Bruce Castor makes that more difficult for them politically. So they have an interest, even if they are not persuadable in this case, to being able to substantiate the vote that they eventually cast. And so uh, I think that's why you saw even many Republicans who voted that this case was not constitutional, essentially sided with the president. 44 of them voted that this was not a constitutional trial, not to proceed. Many of them still raised issues with Trump's legal team. And whether that's because they are actually persuadable, it seems unlikely, uh, but they do have an interest in having a compelling case that allows them to feel good about their votes to eventually acquit. And also, you know, it, it matters when it comes to the final vote count. While we just had only six Republicans voting to proceed, some of those, according to Senator Roy Blunt, who voted that it was not constitutional, could still vote to convict. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell is reportedly still on the table to convict, even though he voted against proceeding. Even some of these members who voted to proceed could eventually vote to acquit. Uh, Senator Bill Cassidy is was the surprise vote on Monday. He comes from a very conservative state. It would be a very tough vote for him to convict Trump. So there are senators who are 
who are gettable and who are in the balance and and both side wants their side to be as united as possible. And I think that's really what's behind Republicans raising concerns about Trump's legal team. And I think that's an interesting idea in terms of what Democrats' final goal is here, that, yes, the likelihood that they're actually going to convict the president is pretty low. But the idea that they could persuade at least a few senators who didn't even vote to proceed to change their minds and to vote to convict the president, that there's just like a message that is sent by changing those few votes that it seems is worth it to them to fight for. Yeah, I mean, look, we have had one member of a president's own party ever vote to convict a president in an impeachment trial. And that happened last year. It was Mitt Romney voting to convict President Trump. So the idea that there would even be potentially a handful of Republicans that would vote to convict in this scenario would be pretty significant for Democrats and I think would very plausibly be labeled a win for them. Beyond that, though, it matters in the court of public opinion. If if this is something that winds up being pretty close to a party line vote, do Democrats look like they pursued something that wasn't worth their time and, and that the American people might judge harshly? The polls show people are actually pretty split on Trump's conviction while they're marginally in favor. So this is not a, a political settled issue. And there are many consequences for the two parties beyond just the ultimate vote and whether it's 52-48 or 51-49 or something like that. Aaron Blake is a senior political reporter for The Fix. This week, the U.S. passed an encouraging milestone. 10% of the population has now received at least one dose of the coronavirus vaccine. And a somewhat surprising collection of states has been leading the pack. So the question that I was asking was really, what is it that's dictating which states are successful in rolling out their vaccines and which states are failing? And we've seen over the course of the last month and a half that a lot of states have really, really struggled with this and have really had a, a problem in terms of actually getting shots into people's arms. But there are some states that are doing well, and I wanted to understand why. I'm Griff Whitty, and I'm a national correspondent with The Post. And what are those states that you looked at as case studies of places that are doing well with distributing the vaccine? So when you look at the states that are at the top of the list, the states that are doing best in terms of getting shots into people's arms, it's really hard to divine any kind of pattern there. It's not red states or blue states. It's not big states or small states, urban states or rural states. It's a combination of, of a lot of different kinds of states. And I looked at three states primarily, uh, West Virginia, South Dakota, and Connecticut. And all three of those states are doing better than average in terms of really making sure that the vaccine supplies that they're given by the federal government are then promptly distributed. And all three of those states are doing very different things, but the thing that they have in common and the thing that I think really defines what a successful strategy is at this point is that they're all very simple, centralized, and organized. 
So let's go through these three states one by one. And maybe it makes sense to start with West Virginia. What is the state doing that is making them so good at vaccination? I spoke with the governor, Jim Justice, and he said that his number one goal as the state rolled out its vaccination program was to make sure that they didn't overthink what they had to do. You know, we didn't necessarily take the federal approach. We took a practical practical approach and we took an all-in approach and we knew we had to move. We didn't want vaccines sitting on a shelf. We needed them in people's arms. Whereas a lot of states have different programs for different counties, West Virginia has tried to make it a much more uniform system. They've tried to centralize it. They've tried to have one set of rules for eligibility. And they've also relied very heavily on the National Guard. And the National Guard does logistics very well. And I'm curious what that has looked like on the ground. The fact that the National Guard is involved, how does that actually change the process of actually getting these vaccines out? Well, of course, West Virginia is a very rural state. You have a lot of people who live very far from a healthcare facility, from a hospital perhaps. Throughout training, especially uh, in rural settings, we know that uh, access to health care uh, can be difficult. This could be because of transportation. It could be because of general isolation. West Virginia has a lot of absolute wonderful communities. They just tend to be a little far from the central hubs of the county seats and larger access points. One thing that, that West Virginia did that no other state did is that there was a federal program to work with Walgreens and CVS, the two biggest pharmacy chains in the United States, for those pharmacies to work with nursing homes, senior facilities. And West Virginia opted out of that system and said, we're going to work with Walgreens and CVS, but we're also going to work with our local pharmacies and independent uh, drugstores. And that enabled the state to... Uh, use a lot more pharmacies that are a lot closer to to the care facilities and the people who ultimately needed to get these shots. And I would imagine that there are also similar problems for a state like South Dakota in dealing with the fact that it is not a very dense state, that people are very spread out. So what was their approach to tackling the problem of making sure that the vaccines are able to get to people who are a little bit more far-flung? So it's interesting. It's a very different strategy from the one that West Virginia has pursued. Uh, But it's also a strategy based on this idea of trying to make things as simple as possible. So South Dakota has not relied on the Guard to to get the vaccines out. It's relied on the fact that it has a very small number of healthcare providers. There are basically three big hospital systems in South Dakota. And the state partnered directly with these healthcare systems and basically said to these healthcare systems, it's your responsibility to make sure that the vaccines get to where they need to be. I'm also excited to report to you that there's a light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to our fight with COVID-19. Now, South Dakota is leading the nation in dispersing the COVID vaccine. In just over a month, tens of thousands of people across the state have received their first dose. And so they bypassed the county health departments in many respects. And a lot of states are relying very heavily on county health departments, but county health departments are completely overwhelmed nationwide. They are already at the edge of what they can handle and past what they can handle just dealing with with COVID. 
And they're, in many cases, very, very poorly funded. And so South Dakota bypassed the the county health departments and is really just working with these major healthcare providers. So there aren't very many people who are making these decisions. It's a very small group. And every week they all get together. There aren't more than 15 of them on the call. They get together and talk about what they need for that particular week. They talk about who's going to be eligible that week. They talk about how they're going to get the vaccine to where it needs to go. And they have just a few really uh, important rules that they never violate. One of them is they never waste a dose. So they're, they're never throwing vaccines out. Another is that they don't leave any vaccine in the refrigerator over, over the weekend. So they're getting that vaccine. Once they have it thawed, once they have it ready to go, they're going to get it into, into someone's arm. And then I'm also curious about Connecticut, which is obviously a very different state from either West Virginia or South Dakota. Denser, and I would imagine probably has more of a built-up healthcare insurance infrastructure. What have been the solutions that have worked well there? So Connecticut put together a pretty extensive network of community partners over the course of this pandemic. This is a race. We are racing to get as many people vaccinated as quickly as we can um, ahead of what could be this um, super contagious um, uh, strain. And that's what we're going to find out. So far, um, with what supplies we have, we're doing pretty well. They initially wanted to use these partners to really ramp up testing. And they worked very closely with a variety of community partners, so community health clinics, doctor's offices, hospitals. And they have basically used that partner network now as the foundation for their vaccination program. And so in every community, they have partners that they've been working with throughout this pandemic and that they know they can rely on, they know they can trust, and they've been working very, very closely together with them. So when you talk to officials in these three states, what did they say were the lessons or the models that they think could be directly transferred to other states for them to improve their own distribution system? Every state is going is different, and every state is going to have its own set of challenges. What works in one state is not necessarily going to work in another state. Having said that, though, when I talked with the officials in these states that have been successful, they did feel that a lot of what they were doing could be applicable in other states. So when I spoke with the governor of West Virginia, Jim Justice, he said he had been on a call with all of his fellow governors, and he just couldn't believe how complicated some of these governors were making this system. They were overthinking it. This is not rocket science, but you got to move you got to absolutely be bold enough to move, and that's what we did. He had a very plain-spoken way of putting it, which is, if you want to know how many cows are in the field, just count the egg-sucking cows. Don't count the cow's legs and then divide by four. The vaccine rollout obviously has been fraught with challenges, and I think that, at least for me and I think for many people, it's kind of played into how we understand this pandemic as a whole, that the response has been a disaster on many levels, that there were so many failures that resulted in lives that were lost, that we as a country like can't really get our act together. But I think it is actually really helpful to hear about places where things are going okay, or at least better than expected, and that there are actual solutions that aren't that complicated that could lead us on a better path in a short-term future. 
And I think that that's one reason why West Virginia has captured a lot of attention, because West Virginia is one of the poorest states. It is a state that really suffers, uh, has one of the highest rates of chronic health conditions. And so it's a state that when you're starting this process, you would think maybe West Virginia is going to really, really struggle with this. Well, actually, the, the inverse has been true. West Virginia has become an example for a lot of other states, a lot of states that are much wealthier, that have more resources. But it's pursued a different strategy. And I think that in this environment where you have 50 different states doing 50 different things, 50 laboratories for how to make this process work, it's important for all of the states to be looking at one another and trying to learn from one another because we are ultimately in a race to get this vaccine out. We are in a race to make sure that uh, enough people are vaccinated that this disease does not come roaring back. It's already done so much damage, killing hundreds of thousands of people. The longer it takes for the vaccine to actually get out there, the more people are going to die. Griff Whitty is a national correspondent for The Post. While Connecticut, West Virginia, and South Dakota are near the top of the list in vaccine rollout, they are still not doing as well as Alaska, the U.S. state with the highest percentage of vaccinated residents. Currently, about 15% of our population has received at least one shot, and about 6% of our entire population is fully vaccinated. Dr. Ann Zink is the chief medical officer for the state of Alaska. She spoke with Post Reports producer Jordan Marie Smith about how this sprawling state with a challenging landscape is doing so well. I've been very proud of Alaska being able to respond to being able to get vaccines out across such a beautiful and huge state really quickly. For some time now, we've continued to be the most vaccinated per capita, both in shots begun as well as total vaccine doses administered and series complete. So it's been great to see a lot of vaccine getting out across the state overall. It's uh, been pretty remarkable to see the community coming together and uh, creating a path out of this pandemic. So what's contributing to such a high rate of vaccination? Yeah, I think that there's four real things helping to contribute to the high rate of vaccines uh, in the state of Alaska. First of all, I think it's been our community partnership. We've had amazing community resiliency and partnership in getting vaccines out super quickly. Part of that is because we have built on an existing public health infrastructure of our immunization team, where we currently and previously had been redistributing vaccine uh, across the state of Alaska for other vaccines as well. So we had that existing infrastructure and were able to build upon that. And that's been a little bit different than other states. I would also state that in that partnership has been our partnership with the tribes. At every level in our vaccine distribution, we have partnered with the tribes as they do offer healthcare in so many parts of our state where there is no other healthcare. So beneficiaries and non-beneficiaries receive a lot of healthcare via the tribal health system uh, in our state. So for example, even though Alaska Native people only make up about 16% of our population, 50% of our testing sites have been administered at some of our tribal uh, locations. So that, that breadth and depth of ability to deliver care is really critically integrated into the tribal health system. 
Another thing that I think is helping significantly uh, is the fact that we do have vaccine coming in from these federal partnerships, including the Department of Defense, the VA, and IHS. So it's just helped get more vaccine out quickly. And we do have 229 sovereign tribes, as well as the highest per capita veterans per, uh, in the country. And so I think that that is also helping, although we don't have good numbers on the VA and DOD. I think the other thing that's making a big difference is uh, the creativity and the fact that the federal government allowed us to be treated like a territory instead of a state and receive our vaccine allocation monthly instead of weekly. That has allowed us to pair our vaccine uh, together with the IHS vaccine at the beginning of the month and ship it together so that we can overcome some of the significant geographic barriers. And it's really allowed us to ship in a little bit higher uh, quantities than just shipping you know, one dose or one vial at a time and allow us to get a vaccine out much more quickly. We've had parts of our state where it will be weeks that we're unable to even get to because of weather. And so being able to um, use that weather window and have the vaccine available when we're set to go has made a gigantic difference. That's really impressive. So even though Alaska has been really on the forefront of vaccine rollout, could you tell me sort of like some of the key challenges to getting people vaccinated in Alaska? I think like other states, our biggest barrier is just the amount of vaccine. I think everyone I talk to across the country, if we have more vaccine, we could get it out uh, much faster. So I think that that is the biggest limitation. Uh, And we're excited for any additional dose that we can get in the state and we can get it in people as long as we can get it in the state. So that's our biggest limitation. We have other limitations. I think that just the planning, there's been a lot of changes in production and knowing when our next doses are going to come, what that looks like, um, different partnerships that have been happening. The more visibility that we have on that, uh, the better off we're able to plan and pivot. It's really important uh, for many states, but also Alaska, that we're able to rely on our community partners and not just federal partnerships. So for example, you know, we have many communities that don't have a pharmacy. And so something like a federal pharmacy partnership is not going to be able to serve that community super well. And we're going to have to look uh, to other ways to be able to get vaccine out quickly. So what are some of the specific challenges when it comes to vaccinating indigenous communities? In general, our Alaska Native population is a community that tends to be more highly vaccinated than some of our other groups within the state of Alaska. So in general, uh, there is pretty good uh, uptake in vaccine and a lot of interest in vaccine. Unfortunately, they've been hit so hard with so many pandemics and epidemics uh, that oftentimes they choose to get vaccinated quite quickly. A big limitation has just been trying to make sure that they have access to vaccines so that they're able to um, vaccinate their communities and really appreciate the federal government's decision to recognize IHS and the tribes with their sovereignty and allocate vaccine to them. I think that that has been transformational in this pandemic response. Our entire pandemic response has been shaped by the 1918 pandemic and the devastation that that caused. And I think that the decision from the federal government to allow a separate allocation for the tribes um, is going to make a generational impact because it really allowed tribes to decide for themselves on who they wanted to vaccinate, how they wanted to vaccinate. Uh, And I think will be one of the biggest legacies of how this pandemic played out in the state. When thinking about Alaska, I'm thinking about how big it is. You know, it's bigger than Texas, just considering how much land there is. So I'm wondering how people are able to get to these remote places and also store these vaccines in such cool temperatures. 
It looks so different across the state. So if you go to a big place like Anchorage, you're going to see, you know, pharmacies and mass vaccine clinics like you would see many other places or doctor's offices. In other communities, so for example, in the YK Delta region, they, when they went to go vaccinate the healthcare workers, the community health aides, they had the community health aides snow machine up to the airplane strip. They had small planes that landed with the vaccine. They vaccinated just on the snow machine, their health aides, and then they moved to the next village and they did multiple villages in one day to be able to go from village to village. And that's how they got their community health aides done. We've had communities that have had boat up vaccine clinics for the medics who are working on these deep sea fishing boats. We have had communities uh, taking kind of these long dog sleds pulled by snow machine and going house to house to vaccinate elders. We've had communities where we were unable to fly secondary to the weather and uh, captains of different ships just volunteered to help to take a vaccine across a waterway to getting into a community that can only be accessed by plane or water. We have many communities that are what we call off the road system. There's no road access. And so we've had to really rely on other forms of transportation to get vaccine to them quite quickly. So what are some things that the state of Alaska still needs to improve upon when it comes to how the pandemic has been handled, specifically concerning vaccinations? Yeah, I feel like we're always learning and improving. We definitely need to keep working on our website and connecting people to vaccine. We have lots of interest uh, in it and creating a good way for people who are interested to be able to get in line and to be able to get vaccinated uh, is going to be key to being able to move fast Continuing to deal with hesitancy and talking and making sure that we're helping to address misinformation is a big focus and getting it out there. I also think that being able to empower communities, giving them really the resources they need to continue to move quickly uh, with vaccine. We've been asking a lot of them and they have been working super hard, but it's not going to be sustainable for the long run. And so making sure that they've got the resources they need to make this sustainable is going to be really critical and continuing to kind of build up that infrastructure for ongoing vaccine delivery. So those are a big part of our focus right now. Dr. Ann Zink is the chief medical officer for the state of Alaska. She spoke to Post Reports producer Jordan Marie Smith. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. As the impeachment trial continues this week, consider going back to listen to our deep dive into the events of the Capitol on January 6th. It is a moment-by-moment breakdown of the riot with voices that you may not have heard before and insights into the events at the center of the impeachment trial. That episode of Post Reports is called Four Hours of Insurrection, and you can find it in our show notes today or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Thank you.